Are you tired of being told what to think and how to act? Well, you are not alone. In case you haven't realized it, you have an internal GPS. It knows all you need to know about how to live your life. So it's about time you stopped letting the media and the government tell you what is true for you. In fact, it is exactly that time. It's time to think for yourself. And here to make sure you're doing just that is your host, mediator, author, and lawyer, Carol Gold. Hi, it is Sunday, October 15th. I'm Carol Gold, and welcome to Think for Yourself. It is, in fact, nearly impossible to do a podcast of any meaning and not discuss what has happened in the Middle East in the last eight days. In order to do that, I'd like to give you my own perspective, a personal perspective on several levels, and then to look at the bigger picture. Let me start with the fact that I was a divorce attorney for 15 years, and one of the cases that I will forever remember was the representation of a woman who was a very successful executive in what was fundamentally a male field, an engineering field, and in fact, she oversaw several engineers. She was married to a man who also had a career, but not nearly as successful or as I would guess arguably important than hers. She was also remarkable at home. She was kind of, I used to joke, she was the Martha Stewart of my world. There was virtually nothing this woman could not do in terms of cooking or homemaking or home repairs, or she was really a remarkable, incredibly well-rounded woman. And what I learned in representing her in the course of the divorce was how often and how badly she had been beaten by her husband. He had broke many bones in her body and was continually abusive. And she had finally gotten the courage and whatever it took to leave the marriage. And so in that representation, over the course of, I would say, probably nine months, almost a year, we, she and I, made several settlement offers to the other side, meaning to her husband and to his attorney. Now, I think the attorney pretty much functioned under the direction of his client, and every single offer to settle was turned down. And the offers, in my opinion, and in my estimation of the case, were better than the husband would have gotten had we gone to court, and was incredibly generous in terms of the history of the relationship and the assets that they had, which were significant. But he would not settle. Fundamentally, there was no one on the other side with which to negotiate. Because his position or his approach to the divorce was similar to what it had been to the marriage, which was he wanted to destroy her in any way he could. And to do that, he was prepared to go to battle. I said to my client, there's nowhere to go here but to try this case. And she said, okay. We went to trial. We were before a master. In Pennsylvania, there are no jury trials for divorce. A master is an attorney who sits basically in the position of a judge who makes a bench determination as to the outcome of the case. But here's only divorce matters. The judge or the master in that case did something that I had never before seen done. In writing the opinion for the case, she started off by saying, 
husband is a liar and an abuser. Now, usually you don't get that kind of response from a court. It doesn't delve into the emotional issues. But what had happened during trial was that husband testified on the stand that he had never hit his wife. And not only did she testify to every bruise and every broken bone, but her medical records were entered into the record, the official record of the divorce testimony as well. And so it was indisputable what he had done. So that even to the last moment, confronted with the facts, he would not acknowledge what he had done. He lied to the very end. Why do I tell you this? in an episode where I'm talking about and and plan to delve deeper into the Israeli situation, the situation of what just happened with Hamas in southern Israel. And the reason is, is that because in the case of Israel and Hamas, there is no one to negotiate with either. Meaning, on the side of Hamas, there is no one to negotiate with. So when People around the world, when world leaders, when organizations want to put pressure on Israel to say, you should negotiate, you should, you know, at this point, you should sit down and negotiate a ceasefire. What they lack an understanding of is that there is no good faith negotiator or negotiation possible from the side of Hamas. And the reason is that Hamas is an organization which in its own founding charter, states as its mission, its purpose, and its goal, the destruction of the Jewish people, the annihilation of the Jewish people, and the complete takeover of what is now known as Israel. It is the total destruction of the Jewish people. So there's no negotiating here. Because there isn't even, I guess in a sense you would say, a military objective. Because as much as they would like the land as indicated in their charter, in order to get it, they want to, they hope to, annihilate the Jewish people. So it doesn't matter how much land the Jewish people would give them, the Israelis would give them, evidence by Gaza and the West Bank, it doesn't matter because they can't get enough land because no amount of land is enough. It's more than the land that they want. They want the annihilation of all Israelis, and worldwide, globally, all Islamists who are radical Muslims want the eradication of the Jewish people. That's the first point I want to make. There's no good faith negotiation possible here in this situation. Number two is this. In the late 1970s, I had founded a political action committee that was a pro-Israel political action committee. I would never attempt to make believe I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm a Jew, and I have politically supported Israel all of my adult life. So I was in Washington a lot, and I was on Capitol Hill a lot. And I went through, meaning my access to congressmen and senators on behalf of issues that were of importance to both the United States and Israel, was through APAC. It stands for the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. And what APAC does is make a concerted effort and a very successful one over decades to keep members of Congress educated on the realities of the Middle East, to take them on trips to the Middle East when they are newly elected members of Congress, and show them the reality on the ground in Israel. 
About that time, in the late 70s, APAC hired a young man recently out of college to go around the country and speak at college campuses. Why? Because APAC had learned that the Arab world had a policy that they had implemented to buy up chairs, meaning make contributions significant to major U.S. universities in order to influence academia, in order to head departments, and in order to affect and manipulate curriculum in the late 1970s. That has been going on ever since. So now, some 40, what, 42 years later, 48 years later, whatever it is, roughly, all of those college students from 1978 till present across all of our universities, major universities, major Ivy League universities, have been influenced and taught misinformation and disinformation about the reality of the Middle East situation. And that is why we have seen in the last week the incredible displays of support allegedly for the Palestinian people. But the support isn't for the Palestinian people in the last eight days. It's for Hamas because the rallies and the protests began immediately after Hamas slaughtered, raped, murdered, tortured, and kidnapped infants, children, women, parents, the elderly, and the infirm. Think about that. Not one Palestinian had been harmed when all of those protests and rallies took place. So what were those people really celebrating? They were celebrating slaughter, torture, rape, murder, kidnapping, beheading. That's what they were celebrating, which in and of itself is incredibly disturbing because it makes you wonder how much humanity is left in humanity. The third thing is that Israel is approximately the size of New Jersey, which is our fifth smallest state. If you've ever been to Israel, this isn't a shock to you, but if you've never been and you don't know this, it is a rude awakening when you realize that it is the size of New Jersey surrounded by seven or eight Arab countries that seek its annihilation, that seek its destruction. Also in the late 70s, I was in Israel and I stayed at a kibbutz, which is like a communal community, just like the two that were slaughtered last Saturday by Hamas in southern Israel. I stayed in the north, near the Golan Heights, and I stayed at a kibbutz called Kafar Bloom. And Kafar Bloom was a, um, at the time, they have a hotel now that they run on the kibbutz, but they were fundamentally an agrarian type of community. And I remember one of the first or second nights I was there was so beautiful that after dinner, communal dinner in a communal dining room, when it got dark, I took a walk outside and I was kind of strolling around the kibbutz when someone grabbed my arm and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, the night sky is so beautiful. I'm taking a walk. And they pointed up into the hills of the Golan Heights And they said, do you see that reflection up there? And I said, yes. And they said, that's off the gun of a Syrian soldier pointed down at us. Go back inside. And it was a rude awakening for me at that time 
to realize that those Israelis were living under literally gunpoint from Syrian soldiers who had control of the Golan, which, by the way, is about 3,000 feet above the Galilee. It is a, an incredibly important strategic position for shelling Israeli farms and villages that are below the heights. By, I would say, 1967, just so you know a little history on the Golan, by 1967, Israel was pretty isolated. Militarily, it was, you know, on its own. And the Arab countries around it were planning to attack. So, and a military commander, several of them, conceived a brilliant war strategy, and that was that the entire Israeli Air Force, with the exception of 12 fighters that were assigned to defend the airspace, took off early in the morning, around 7 a.m., in what was called Operation Moked, which is Operation Focus. And their intent and their goal was to bomb Egyptian airfields while the Egyptian pilots were eating breakfast. The day before that attack, then-Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin said to the soldiers, Remember, your mission is one of life or death. If you succeed, we win the war. If you fail, God help us. By 11 a.m., four hours later, 180 Egyptian fighter planes had been destroyed, and that war ended with an armistice that left most of the Golan Heights in Israel hands. And in 1981, Israel passed a law that effectively annexed the Golan. So from the north, the Israelis have to deal with, well, actually from the north, they deal with Lebanon. From the northeast, they deal with Syria. From the south, they deal with the Palestinians. Only the Palestinians means they deal with Hamas, a terrorist organization. From Syria, they deal with the RBG, a terrorist organization. From the north, they deal with Lebanon, which is Hezbollah, which is another terrorist organization, all three of which are directed and financed by Iran. So let me for a moment go back to this worldwide support that we just saw for, quote, the Palestinian people. Again, the support isn't for the people. The support is for what Hamas did to the Jewish people. And it goes back to what I said about the Arab world's seeding of influence and manipulation of both the history and current civil events through academia in this country, through our universities beginning in 1970, and continuing now to as I speak. If you listen to progressives, if you listen to the political left here in the United States, if you listen to all of the young people that have been brainwashed, it's the only thing I can call it, about the history and the reality of the Middle East, and certainly if you listen to the Arab world, Israel is an apartheid state. You've heard this, and you've heard it more and more recently. You hear it from the squad, from our own Congress, from those members who are pro-Palestinian and who are anti-Semitic and hate Israel. So what is an apartheid state? Well, that term was coined in South Africa, and it was coined on the basis of race, where the minority white population dictated the benefits and the parameters of what was available to the black population, where they could work, where they could live, the type of education they could receive, and whether or not they could vote. 
So let's apply that to Israel. Is it an apartheid state? Well, there are 2 million Arabs in Israel, living in Israel. That's about one-fifth of Israel's population. The vast majority of them are Muslim. There's fewer than 200,000 Christians in that population, in that Arab population. And I'll distinguish them from the Arabs that are in the West Bank, or what Jews call Judea and Samaria, the biblical name, or from the Arabs that are in East Jerusalem. These are Arab Israelis. What does an Arab Israeli mean? Well, they're largely descended from Arabs who lived within Israel's borders before the state's establishment in 1948. They didn't flee then. They didn't get expelled then. They are full citizens of Israel. They have the right to vote. They have equity under the law. Israeli Arabs serve from the Israeli Arab parties in Israel's parliament, would be like our Congress. An Arab judge sits on the Israeli Supreme Court. So tell me where the apartheid state is. If what they're really referring to is the Gaza Strip, understand this. In 2005, 21 Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip were unilaterally dismantled And the Israeli settlers that were there and an army evacuated from inside the Gaza Strip. So the Israeli army that was there and the settlers that had settled there evacuated, some of them taken forcefully, they didn't want to leave, to turn the Gaza Strip completely over autonomously to the Palestinian people so that they could govern themselves and so that they could create their own flourishing geographic region. One year later, one year later, the Palestinian people elected Hamas to lead them. Since then, Hamas has used all the money, billions of dollars from both the United States and countries around the world and organizations. They have used billions of dollars, that's with a B, and material from, as I said, the U.S. and other countries that were given to the Palestinian people so that their leaders, Hamas, could build infrastructure and could help raise the standard of living for the Palestinian people. But instead, Hamas used the money for the following. Primarily, after using a nice chunk of it for their leadership to live very nice in Oman, in million-dollar villas, they used that money to build underground tunnels from which to attack Israel. They used the materials. They repurposed pipes intended for irrigation and water supply to the people, to the Palestinian people. Instead, they repurposed those pipes to make missiles to lob against Israel. The BBC or CNN, I'm not sure which one, actually did a special on that very fact, showing them repurposing the pipe, not for what it was intended, which was the betterment of the people, but for attack against Israel. Hamas's charter, as I said, has a sole purpose. The sole purpose for Hamas's existence is the annihilation of the Jewish people. They don't want to live side by side. They don't want to live in peace. They only want annihilation. 
So let's go back to my client's divorce where there was no one to negotiate with in good faith on the other side. As long as no other Arab country wants to allow the Palestinians to take refuge there, as long as the Palestinian people choose Hamas as their leadership, as long as the Palestinian people don't do anything to oust that leadership, as long as the Palestinians dance in the street and celebrate the slaughter, rape, torture, and beheading of Israelis, that's how long this terror nightmare will continue unless something is done. So what should Israel do? Isn't that the big $24,000 question at the moment? You can read posts and columns and listen to anchors everywhere talking about what Israel should do. You can listen to Anthony Blinken, who in Israel, standing next to Netanyahu, said after expressing his own Jewish heritage and expressing his horror at what happened in southern Israel by Hamas, went on to lecture Netanyahu from the podium on a proportional response. Biden has talked about a proportional response. Okay, so what are Israel's options in this situation? They were doing nothing on a Saturday morning, which is both the Shabbat, the holiest day of the week, the Sabbath, remember the commandment, honor thy Sabbath, honor the seventh day, And it was Simcha Torah, one of the most joyous days in Jewish celebration, a day of dancing with the Torah, the day that the Jews received the Torah. They were doing that, celebrating and dancing and being joyous when they were slaughtered, raped, beheaded, kidnapped, tortured. What should they do? Well, I can come up with four possible responses. The first one is they should do nothing. They should just take it because how awful to hurt an innocent Palestinian as collateral damage. Okay, they should do nothing. The second thing is they should do a little, but not enough to actually eradicate the problem, the disease, the metastatic cancer in Gaza so that it can return once it reconstitutes itself. They could do that. They could do a little. And by the way, while they're doing the little, they should be providing water and food to the Palestinian people, the same people who dance in the street when the Jews are slaughtered. The third thing they could do is a proportional response. That's what the world is calling for. That's what the UN is cautioning for. That's what Biden called for. That's what Blinken called for. What is a proportional response in this situation? Well, I would say that a proportional response is for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, to go into Gaza to slaughter, murder, rape, burn alive, torture, behead, and kidnap civilians. That would be a proportional response. I believe it's called an eye for an eye. Proportional. And the last thing that the Israelis could do is to cut out the disease cut out the cancer, end it, end the madness, end the terror so that it can never again happen. Not so that it's in remission, so that it's gone once and for all. So there we are. Israel should do nothing. Israel should do a little, but not enough to actually solve the problem. Israel should do a proportional response 
where Israel should destroy the problem and make certain it never happens again. If you have an option I'm unaware of, let me know. But of those four, which do you think makes the most sense? I read an article written by journalist Daniel Pearl's cousin. If you remember, uh, Al-Qaeda kidnapped him. I think he was in Iraq, or maybe it was Pakistan. And they beheaded him on video and sent it to his family. They also played it on, on Al Jazeera, the beheading. He had done nothing wrong. He was a Jew in the wrong place at the wrong time, at the mercy of barbarians, which is what Islamic terrorists are, each and every one of them. They're barbarians. They're not animals. Animals don't behave this way. They're barbarians. Daniel Pearl's family, instead of being filled with hate after his beheading, they started the Daniel Pearl Foundation, which raised money to educate both Arabs and Jews to try to bring people together. After going through such a horrible experience, they still remained liberal, they still remained Democrats, they still remained peace-loving. Remarkable in and of itself. But the column that his cousin wrote two days ago said that what happened a week ago on Shabbat in southern Israel forever changed the way he sees the world, the way he sees the intentions of the Arab world, and he now understands what I tried to explain to you at the beginning of this podcast, which is there's no one to negotiate with. There's no reason There's no rationality. There's no logic. There's no pure of heart. There's no desire for peace. It is a death cult, and it seeks to destroy not only Israel, but remember those chants that you hear from the Arab world, particularly from Iran, the head of that snake, is to destroy Israel and to destroy the United States, the little Satan and the great Satan as they frame it. So coming to a theater near us sooner than we would like, unless we all understand what German Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said near the end of World War II. He said, not to speak is to speak. Not to stand is to stand. Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Do not be silent. Call evil what it is. Do not be dissuaded. Do not be intimidated. Both the light and God are on the side of truth. Stand with it. God is your protector and truth is your shield. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Gold. I'll be back here again next Sunday. And until I am, by all means, not only be safe, but think for yourself. Carol thanks you for spending your valuable time with her. It is her mission to empower you to remember how smart and capable you are. Be sure to check out Carol's website, carolgold.com. That's carol with an E, gold.com. Please leave a review and subscribe here so you'll be alerted to Carol's next podcast. Until then, above all else, remember, it's time to think for yourself.